event room where respiratory therapists can come and get a little inspiration. I'm your host, Dr. Tabitha Dragonberry. Today, we're joined by Nicole Kupchik. She is an author, an independent clinical nurse specialist, and educator. My friend Gail Carr had sent me Nicole's YouTube video on awake, non-intubated proning for COVID-19, and I thought it was interesting. So I reached out to Nicole to join us here at the Vent Room. Thank you for being here today. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. So this pandemic has really resulted in some interesting adaptations that we wouldn't have necessarily seen in healthcare previously. There's IV pumps and vent screens outside of the patient's rooms to prevent provider exposure. And some areas are just so overwhelmed and they don't even have enough ventilators and there's concerns. They don't actually have enough providers and there's concerns that they might not even have enough equipment such as ventilators. And we're also having difficulty providing PPE to the people on the front lines. What are your thoughts on some of the challenges that healthcare is facing right now? I just think bottom line is we weren't prepared. Um, you know, our, our healthcare systems aren't designed really to deal with massive influxes of patients. And, um, you know, and then on top of that, you add that, like I can speak for the United States, um, our stockpile was, <laughs> a big portion of our stockpile was shipped to China back in February. So, you know, that's on the State Department's website. So, I mean, just bottom line is just we weren't prepared. And um, and unfortunately, I think the people paying for the, pr the price for this are the frontline workers. Yeah, it's definitely um, interesting on seeing how this is. Because, you know, as healthcare professionals, we don't necessarily train for pandemics. We train for like mass casualties and things like that, where there's a temporary uptake um, and everything's going to settle out. So I feel like for, like New York and different areas are just getting hit because I don't think anyone's ever imagined a sustained increase in patients um, for any long period of time. Yeah. And I think that's the big difference, right? Because it's not like, you know, a trauma, patients might be hospitalized. I mean, usually it's younger, healthier people who experience traumas, right? But, um, you know, th this po patient population is very different and they're sick for a really long time. And, uh, you know, and, and they need special equipment. And, and I think that's, you know, it's just, just like the perfect storm for chaos. And so, yeah. So one thing the internet provides us is the easy exchange of information. And in this pandemic, there has been a lot of sharing because this is a new world and we've never account encountered this before. Uh, vent companies have put proprietary information out there. Tesla's out there figuring out how to make ventilators out of car part. And it's um, an interesting time in healthcare overall. But what really drew me to your video was the topic of proning non-vented patients. We prone vent patients. Not, I'm not going to say all the time, right? But there's specific patients that you're like, okay, this patient's going to benefit from proning. And, and in the adult world, it's a lot of work. I normally work pediatrics and it's actually something that, you know, we commonly do with the babies. You know, they're on NIV and we prone them and we you know, position them quite frequently. So the idea of including this into adult care isn't 
far off. So I know, where did you first see, like, I guess a lot of the research coming out about the proning of the non-vented COVID patients? Well, I'll be super honest. There's not a lot of research. I literally was able to only find three papers on it. And, um, but it just makes sense, right? I mean, if you think about the physiology of it, first of all, let's back up to, to ask each of ourselves, how do we sleep? I am not a supine sleeper. I sleep on my side or on my stomach. And like, I honestly would be really uncomfortable if I were made to be kept in the supine position. If you've ever run a race of any sort, you get to the finish line, you'll see often marathon runners lay on their back and then they quickly turn onto all fours. And it's, you know, it just, it's, there's so many physiologic reasons to do this. And so I started getting wind of this out of Italy. So I've been corresponding with a couple different uh, providers out of Iran and Italy. And one of them just said, hey, Nicole, check this out. We are actually seeing decent results when we're putting patients on their stomach, you know, proning them. And I was like, and then I kept corresponding back and forth. I'm like, even non-intubated? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, it just makes per- it makes perfect sense, right? It, it, I mean, if you think about the physiology of turning onto your stomach and getting off your door side and recruiting alveoli. It just, it made perfect sense. So then I started doing a deep dive into the literature. I really couldn't find much, but I'm seeing people post on it from other countries. I'm like, I think there's something to this. And so that's why I decided to do a video on it. No, and it totally does make sense because, you know, for our sickest of patients, we do this invasive turning. We have beds like the rotoprome bed that hospitals can purchase to to do this. I know currently um, I teach online and one of my students was saying that, you know, they have an ICU of 28 patients, 26 of them are intubated and they're going around in like basically Q2, I won't say Q2 hours, but they they have a schedule that they, they start at one end of the ICU and just start their supining patients or are proning patients, but for those patients that are sick and, and they're having those oxygenation problems, and I would focus that they're having oxygenation problems, right? Not necessarily ventilation problems. Yeah. Um, because you we we see patients that have, you know, one or the other or mixed, but for, for oxygenation patients, if they're able to interact and they're able to let you know that this is or is not working for them, it's something that doesn't cost us any money, right? And in the healthcare system, We're always trying to do more with less. Yeah. So I think that um, what were some of the results that we're seeing? Well, you know, and I think just to back up, though, I mean, the thing I would caution people is don't make this any harder than it is. Right. Uh, You know, you've got patients who aren't ventilated. Just ask them to sleep deeply on their side or on their stomach. Give them a couple pillows, um, you know, help them get comfortable. And I, I think that's the key is just don't make this any harder than it needs to be. This does not need to be a big horse and pony show with special beds and your non intubated patients. Right. It just needs to be super super simple. I, I don't know. You know, I just think just see how the patient does is the bottom line. So, so interesting. What did the uh, the research so? Well, the first study I could find in specifically on proning in the non-intubated patient was out of Italy from 2015. And, um, and they, um, it was a, a kind of a retrospective case series where they were able to demonstrate that patients majorly improved oxygenation, you know, by, from going into the prone position. But the key was you had to do it for more than just a few minutes, right? It it seemed like like we didn't, they didn't identify what the exact sweet spot was for staying prone, but it seems like maybe more than six hours or so to get the physiologic benefit of it. And then um, during the pandemic, there there was a paper that was published out of China where they identified kind of the the key patient that benefits from this. Or actually, let let me back up. What uh, What they did was they just 
kind of figure out who their highest risk patient was in uh, their units who had COVID-19. And what they did was they made kind of a protocol of putting them prone. um, And then they would use either uh, the helmet BiPAP or CPAP devices, high flow nasal cannula, and then put them prone and found that they were actually able to um, kind of stave off intubation. So, you know, again, the data are super limited, but from a physiology standpoint, it just completely makes sense. No, and I think that that's, uh, you know, we do things and we try things out because it, it makes sense to us, right? When we were doing quality improvement or making, you know, alterations, we're, we're looking at what works. And I know that there's been conversations back and forth. Do we even bother with BiPAP? Do we um, even go to high flow. But I think also when we're looking at a situation where these hospitals that are not normally resource limited are resource limited, um, this could be helpful in staving off that intubation. You know, I know that from what I've been reading on the COVID patients, you know, they're they're having drastic lung changes when they're being looked at by a CT and you're seeing these ARDS looking x-rays, even when they're not intubated. So if we're able to support them in a manner that doesn't put them at risk for intubation because these patients, they're staying longer, you know, on, on intubation or intubated longer. Well, and you wonder too, uh, you know, one of the big hot topics of discussion is, you know, are we causing more harm with the ventilator than benefit, you know? And it's so funny because I teach mechanical ventilator classes uh, with another respiratory therapist. And one of the things we always open and say is ventilators cause harm. You know, our job is to minimize the harm that they cause to patients while providing support to get them through their disease state. And um, it's so interesting because people get really offended by that. Like, oh my God, I can't believe you just said that. But but it's true. I mean, you know, and, and our, our goal is to minimize harm with ventilators. And by early intubation, are we causing more harm? And I, I, you know, I think right now we're just, we're in a flurry of data just being fire hosed at us. And, you know, I, I think a lot of aspects of this are going to be really carefully evaluated once the dust settles. And I have a feeling we're going to be um, dealing with this again in the fall. So, um, you know, hopefully by the fall, we'll get you know, if we do have another kind of resurgence of these patients, we'll have better strategies to managing them. But if you look at their x-rays, they look art. They look like they've got ARDS. They've got the classic ground glass um, appearance. They've got bilateral infiltrates, you know. But now, I mean, there's some different thinking of, are we dealing A, with different types of this, different strains, and then are there different phenotype presentations? And does one, you know, uh, benefit from PEEP where another doesn't. One has high compliance, another has low compliance. And so I think it's very complex right now. And, um, you know, and I think just keep looking to the literature. And, you know, for those of people who are getting so frustrated because they're like, it's changing every day. Well, here's the reality. We're in a pandemic. It's changing every day, you know. So, and I think people just have to be patient. Just keep looking to the, um, you know, for guidance from the the, the data and, and what people are seeing. So, yeah, it's very complex because I know a lot of people are complaining in the sense of, you know, policies are changing every day, but we are fighting a virus that we've never seen the likes of, at least in many, like of anybody's lifetime that's alive currently. So um, luckily for the internet, right, we're able to provide guidance on how to prevent the spread and how to treat it, right? So right now we're looking to what did they do in Italy? Because um, now finally their their numbers are decreasing in the sense of the number of cases and, and everything's kind of like the dust is settling there. Um, so 
so they were under like basically under attack, under fire, under war against a virus for for such a long time. And now they're they're getting that head above water. And the fact that we're able to share this information so easily and so quickly is really what's going to put us ahead. And if we do have to deal with this in the fall, right, you know, A, when is it going to end now? (laughs) And then B, synthesize everything that's kind of coming out and and make a a plan. Because is this the the beginning of something that's going to be seasonal with a COVID-19? I I have no clue, me either, but I have no clue, right? You know, um, if we get a vaccine. Hopefully we'll have a vaccine. Exactly. You know, hopefully we'll have a vaccine. But as as you know, with flu, I mean, H1N1 mutated, you know, so I mean, you know, but hopefully we will have a vaccine because this this is scary. This is unlike you just said, it's unlike anything we've ever seen. But then my... and then the whole other question are anti-vaxxer questions, right? Or, or, right, because even if... Maybe we'll convert some people now. <laughs> I don't know. Hope, hopefully, but, um, you know, it's just that, that interesting thought process because I know I've had some conversation. It's like, hey, let's say we make a successful vaccine, right? How many people are going to take it? How many people aren't? Who wants to be the first one in line for something that's being rapidly developed, <laughs> Well, you know, interestingly enough, in Seattle, they had 50 people sign up right away and got the vaccine. So um, without hesitation, 50 people signed up and took it. So the first one, I I believe, was a nurse. Well, I think you have that. um, I'm trying to think of the term, but there's like that curve. Early adopters. You have the early adopters who are going to be jumping out like, hey, like, go for it. Then you have the other people that are like, ah, I want to see it. Make sure there's nothing going on. And then you have your later doctors, too. So I think you're going to have a lot more early adopters in this situation because we are, you know, I know one of the other things that you were talking about in your your video, which I thought was interesting, is that we're monitoring these eyes and nose and that we should be keeping these patients that have COVID-19 a little more dry than um, or, or being very aware of how much fluid we're giving them when they have like low blood pressure issues or you're needing to give them some fluid resuscitation. Yeah, well, I think, you know, just in general, um, there's been so much that's developed in the literature over the couple, I would say like the last three to five years um, about fluid. Fluid's not benign. And um, the type of fluid absolutely matters. There's really strong data to say like, you know, back off the saline chloride that we give these patients causes kidney injury, not COVID-19 patients, but just in general that we give um, hospitalized patients. So, you know, so as far as fluid, you always have to ask yourself when you're bolusing someone with fluid is what do you want to happen? And most people will say, oh, I want their heart rate to come down and their blood pressure to go up. Okay, well, th- that's great. But both of those parameters are not really good targets to evaluate when you're giving fluid. What you want to know when you give fluid is you want to know what did your heart do with that fluid? Did the cardiac output increase? Did the stroke volume increase? If so, give fluid. But if, if that's not the case, then you really should not be giving fluid just to give of it. And um, edema is not benign. And, and, and as a respiratory therapist, I, need, I know you know that, um, especially mm-hmm. if you've got any inflammatory process happening, capillaries get leaky, there's third spacing of fluid, which can cause a secondary injury to the lungs. So, you know, you just got to be super mindful when you give fluid and to, per- to give it for a reason and not just to give it to give it. So, you know, but I mean, with that is a 
a counterbalance of not causing kidney injury either because they're so dehydrated. So it is a fine balance. And that's where using dynamic measures like, um, you know, FlowTrack, Cheetah, CNAP, ClearSight, things like that, that you can do with like a passive leg raise test or maybe just even give a little fluid bolus um, to see, you know, what the patient's heart is going to do with that fluid. No, I think that's that's a, a really important point. You know, it's easy to say, let's give them volume, but then you're fighting the volume that you just gave them and, you know, your peak pressures are going up and their lungs are getting fluid overloaded. And now you're not just fighting the fact that you have this edema that is causing its own other issues. And if you didn't gain anything out of it, you know, you're fighting a different problem for for no no gain, no return on investment. Yeah, well, and, if, and literally causing harm. So, you know, it's just... A fluid, you know, this is what I always tell nurses. Think of fluid as a drug. You have to think of it as a drug. You would never just willy-nilly give insulin without knowing what what you are treating, right? You always get a glucose, then you give insulin. So it's the same thing with fluid. You, If you're going to give embolus patients with fluid, you need to know what the effect is of that fluid. No, totally agree. So I think that overall for these COVID-19 patients, if we're looking at, you know, the patients that aren't getting intubated, we can look at like running them a little dry, making sure that we are giving them um, fluid. But that we're not causing harm and they it, it is helping, right? Um, I definitely think that this proning idea of non-vented patients is is great. I know that there's like only three papers on it from what you found, and I'm going to have to go hunting those three papers myself. So, um, but that sounds really, you know, kind of going through. And this is like maybe a new area for us to start studying in the U.S. just because it's it's not something that is going to cost a lot of money to to prone your patients if you're you know you're choosing the right ones that can be participative in that environment because there are those patients that they come in they're able to talk they they can tell you about their dyspnea and we put them on BiPAP and those types of items and it helps, but maybe we could recover them quicker if we did just have them flip over. Because I agree with you, I don't sleep supine. I'm usually on my side or belly and it could help being also just a, a more comfortable position um, with that. So just, you know, changing the lung zones that are being ventilated, improving your, your VQ mismatch, getting that recruitment. Um, and then I'm sure it's going to be helping with their secretion clearance and you're able to put them in a different position because it, it will get it out easier. Yeah, no, and I, I can honestly see this for other, um, other issues. Uh, so for example, the, the Italian paper that I mentioned from 2015, they studied, uh, patients who had pneumonia, um, who trying to think who else was in there. They studied pneumonia, then ARDS, and then they had a, they had some septic patients as well. Um, septic from pneumonia, and then they had one with uh, fasciitis. So, you know, so they did look at, it was a very small study that was only 15 patients. So they did look at other disease states, but I really, really think there's something promising in this. And I can guarantee you right now, it's just, I'll just be super honest, studies are way easier to do in Italy or in, in Europe and um, other countries. Uh, you know, they don't have all the bureaucratic hoops to jump through that we do in the U.S. I can guarantee this is going to be studied. The other really 
interesting thing that's coming out of China right now is vitamin C. So they're giving pretty large doses of vitamin C, um, up to 10 grams in China, and uh, seeing some decent results with that. So you know, so we'll see what happens with that as well. Um, I think I think there might be something to that as long as it's given early enough. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't hear about that one. So that's something that I'll have to look into as well. You know, we all know vitamin C helps. So it, it's interesting if, if it's given in a large dosing at the beginning. You know, usually that's what I do if I'm catching a cold or I'm feeling, you know, you just feel it, right? You, you feel it coming. You take a large dose of vitamin C and you go to sleep and the next morning I'm ready to go to work again. Yeah. Well, and you know, and interestingly enough, so that there um, are currently 20 ongoing studies just in sepsis evaluating vitamin C with thiamine, uh, B1 and um, uh, steroid. And the vitamins trial was published a couple months ago and didn't show benefit of vitamin C. But this is why, and I think this is the hard part about healthcare, right? You you have to read beyond the abstract. And because um, if you just read the abstract of the vitamins trial, you'd be like, oh yeah, I knew that IV vitamin C doesn't do anything. But you have to realize like they didn't even randomize patients. They were in the ICU and then they didn't get their study drug until um, a mean of 12 hours after being enrolled. So they were giving IV vitamin C 25 plus hours after presenting to the hospital. The key thing, so Paul Merrick was kind of like, he's known as the vitamin C guy. And um, interestingly, so he's seen great success in his facility giving IV vitamin C to septic patients. Um, But they give it in the emergency department. And and I think that's the key thing with, um, you know, a lot of studies is you have to look at, you have to evaluate when you read a study, like when did the intervention happen? So for example, if we're going to evaluate proning somebody who's not intubated, you know, waiting till they're about ready to buy a tube is not the time to prone them. You know, maybe if you do it early in their course, you might see benefits. So I, I really hope, you know, if this does get studied, which I, I'm pretty sure it will, that the intervention is implemented early and not late. Right. And I think that you, you highlight a great point is when you're looking at research, yes, the abstract is a little summary, but unless you know exactly when that intervention was implemented, you know, like there was the Oscar versus Oscillate study where, you know, they kind of stopped that. And a lot of them, they, you know, they were using it as a last ditch effort and then you were having poor outcomes. So yeah, if you wait till the end to oscillate a patient, you're not going to have as good outcomes as when you are preemptive and being like, okay, my, I have these trigger points, my PAO2 is low, my SATs are low, my oxygenation's poor. Let's put them on the oscillator of where everything's at the lowest level. Let's put them on the oscillator. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the, and those, those studies were interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. We never had, we tried the oscillator during H1N1 and didn't have good luck with it. So, but, but, but it, yeah, but it just, it doesn't make sense. Like that's, that's, that's just complex, right? Using an oscillator early is not feasible. Yeah. Not early, but not too late. Yeah. But not as like the Hail Mary of like, <laughs> you know, like, here we go. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you, you know, when you're, when you're looking at those things, you're, you're trending your patient. And if your, tr- your trend is going the one way, then you're kind of like, Hey, let's, you know, the conversation needs to be had, you know, versus, um, 
putting somebody on and they're crashing. It changes all your interthoracic pressure and then you're having some, you know, your additional issues that you're needing to give more volume because of the changes that that happened then. But no, I think this is very interesting. I think that, you know, it, I, I appreciated your video in the sense of being able to say, hey, this is what other people are doing. And it's something that, you know, you can consider. It might not be the, even the Hail Mary and this, but it's something that, you know, hey, let's think about it. Let's, this is anybody out there that's interested in research on the clinical side, this is something that might be beneficial and we can start adding to our repertoire of interventions for patients. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I thank you for your time today. I think it was uh, great to talk to you. It's, you know, just something to put some food for thought for therapists and, and, the healthcare team for those patients, because I know there's been some debate on whether or not we should be using high flow, whether or not we should be using BiPAP. I think that everybody needs to, you know, consider what what's available, what how many ventilators you have. So um, this is a, a an I'm not going to say easy intervention, but something that with the right patient you can hopefully leverage to to not need that intubation. Yeah, that would be ideal, right? So, yeah, I don't know. I'm just I'm excited to see what other innovation comes from this because I, I think we're we're we've had to step outside our box and um, and uh, try different things. So stay tuned. We'll see. You know, it's kind of kind of exciting. Yeah, it, we're gonna learn a lot, and there's gonna be a lot of information to synthesize through at the end. Thank you for your time today, and uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Okay, thanks for having me. 